Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 149, A Crash Course in Applied Neurodharma. In this episode, we speak with neuropsychologist and dharma teacher Rick Hansen on how to apply insights from neuroscience to our dharma practice, what Rick calls Applied Neurodharma. This is part one of a three-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm here in a very strange hotel called the Custom Hotel in Los Angeles, and uh, I'm interviewing a special guest, Rick Hansen. Rick, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Yeah. And just a little background about how I found Rick. You were sending me a couple chapters from your newest book, Buddha's Brain, a few months ago, and I was like, oh, this is going to be really cool. So I went ahead and got a copy and uh, have been reading a little bit of it, and then also came to L.A. with my wife this weekend and attended a day-long that you did for Inside L.A. called The Neurology of Awakening, and it was really fascinating, and I took extensive notes so I could ask you a couple good questions. And just a little background for yourself, you're a trained neurologist, neuropsychologist, a neuropsychologist uh-huh. and you're also a Spirit Rock Dharma teacher. You're in the Community Dharma Leader Program there and also served on the board for about nine years. Mm-hmm. So you have both an academic grounding in psychology and neuroscience and also a, a dharmic grounding. You've been practicing since 74, right? Mm-hmm. 35 years. Mm-hmm. So you have this really interesting mm-hmm. kind of combination that we love to uh, explore here on Buddhist Geeks. <laughs> okay, great. I love to be explored. Yeah, totally. Just no cavity search. <laughs> okay, yeah, right on. <laughs> <laughs> so, to start, so to start off, um, one thing I found in the day long that you did was really interesting. You we're kind of reinterpreting the Buddha's core teachings on suffering, the first noble truth, in terms of evolutionary neuropsychology. I was wondering if you could say, why is it from the perspective of neuropsychology and the evolution over time of how our brains and bodies have developed, why is suffering so prevalent in our experience? Great question. Well, first, just to create a bit of a context here, You know, the Dharma has worked in terms of principles and practices for 2,500 years, and you don't need an EEG or an MRI to sit and observe your own experience and cultivate the wholesome and the abandonment of the unwholesome and engage wise effort and move forward on the path of practice. All kinds of people have moved far on that path over the centuries, and some people have gone all the way, arguably, to its end, uh, if there ever is really an end to that path, which is a whole debate within the Dharma community as we know. So that's the larger point. Inside that then the question becomes where does neuroscience or Western psychology add value? And that for me is really an interesting question. I think often it doesn't. It's just sort of glamorous and we have to beware the tendency to grasp after the glamour or glamorize ourselves as teachers and try to look good because we got really cool MRI shots or fancy terminology we can drop into conversation. I think, on the other hand, where it does add value is in different kinds of ways. One way is that it explains physically why the Dharma works or what a Dharma point translates to or operationalizes out 
as in the causes and conditions that are embedded in the human body, nervous system, and evolutionary history. That informing us aids conviction. You know, and conviction is a factor of awakening. Conviction, faith, motivation. Motivation is extremely important on the path. A second thing it does is that it turns us on to what really uh, matters or what's really useful, particularly for an individual householder who wants to practice deeply at this place and time out of the 10,000 tools, if you will, in the toolbox laid out through 2,500 years of practice, both what the Buddha initially laid out and then all the innovations and adaptations since. So in that larger context of respect, yeah, <laughs> I went after it. I thought, wow, how could we reimagine uh, the Four Noble Truths, especially the first two, in, a, in an evolutionary framework? And then in addition to that, I've in particular gotten really interested in how do we translate this understanding into actual practices? In other words, uh, the Buddha, of course, taught very profoundly about causes and conditions. Well, where are those causes and conditions most immediately localized? Hello, inside our own nervous system, headquartered in the brain. So if we start to understand those causes and conditions inside our own head, as they manifest moment to moment to moment to moment in lived experience, which is what we really care about as a bottom line, and moment to moment in the tendencies of mind and heart that incline us toward helpfulness or harmfulness, if we can understand that better, we can do something about it. So that's the larger frame here for me. And a recurring theme, and I'll just say it right now, is the whole notion of using the mind to change the brain to change the mind. In other words, the flow of mental activity maps one-to-one -to, -one to neural activity, unless there's additionally a transcendental factor X. I personally think there is. Some people think there isn't. Won't have that debate right here. But that said, apart from some transcendental X factor, by whatever name or no name at all, the mind is what the brain does. Okay? It's a brain that's embedded in a larger, obviously, uh, web, um, Indra's net, if you will, of causes and conditions that include the body as a whole and human culture and, and biology and nature, broadly defined, both moment to moment and in evolutionary time. But proximally, locally, the brain's the bottom line. So if you're interested in skillfulness, it really makes sense to get more skillful with your own brain. So in that larger context, suffering, it's the noble truth that I've not been very interested in. It's stated typically the truth of suffering. In other words, it's not so much that life is suffering, but although some people might interpret it that way, they might think there's an irreducible suffering inherent in moment-to-moment -moment experiencing. And I think there's actually some truth to that. But the larger point is that there is suffering. Okay, And so the question then becomes, why do we have this capacity for suffering? And, you know, more pointedly, did we evolve to suffer as a mechanism of gene transmission, right? And so I tackle that, and I think we do, and so I'll just say it kind of quickly here. Yeah, please. So I'll say it like this. How do organisms survive? Kind of brutally simply. They do it basically through three mechanisms. One is they establish separations, boundaries between themselves and the world, an inner and an outer. In other words, a virus, a protozoa, a lizard, a squirrel, a monkey, a man and woman establish distinctions between themselves and the world. And if those distinctions are breached, um, the organism will die. So it has to separate in some sense from its world. The second thing the organism has to do is it has to stabilize homeostatic equilibria because if they move outside of their healthy ranges or if the set points that they oscillate around 
change outside of the ranges that will enable the organism to, to survive and pass on its genes, or if they change too rapidly, there's too much instability or chaos in them, under any one of those conditions, the organism will die and it won't pass on gene copies. I'm speaking here of physical, biological evolution, not spiritual evolution, but good old-fashioned Darwinian evolution, which is accomplished through down and dirty, brutally simple, mechanical reproductive advantage accumulating over generations. So that's the second mechanism of survival, maintaining stability. The third mechanism is to approach opportunities and avoid threats. And that then gets built out when organisms that have a nervous system, uh, which is to say multicellular creatures that have evolved over the last 600 uh, million years or so, we approach the pleasant and we avoid the unpleasant. So right there we have the feeling tone, the second of the aggregates embedded in the, in the nervous system as a major mechanism of survival. Well, so far so good in terms of gene copies, right? But Mother Nature does not care if we suffer. She doesn't care about quality of life. She cares about grandchildren, if you will. And so what happens is that each of these mechanisms bumps into a fundamental fact that it pushes against the actual nature of existence. And inside the nervous system are alarm systems that signal pleasure and pain. And they definitely signal pain a.k.a. pain or suffering, when these mechanisms, these three mechanisms are challenged. But here's the problem. First mechanism, separation. But everything's intertwined, fundamentally. All distinctions are partial and somewhat arbitrary at the highest level. And so endlessly the organism is bumping into situations where it discovers that it is actually part of a larger whole in ways that often trigger alarm signals. Second, stability. Well, how do you do that with a Nietzsche? Everything's changing. Sidebar, I, sometimes I'm the kind of guy who thinks, but isn't impermanence permanent? But we won't go there, right? Anyway, you know, again, how do you stabilize what's endlessly changing? And because things are endlessly changing, uh, that signals, creates endless alarm signals inside the organism. Ah, too much change, out of range. Ooh, change the set point back. Suffering. And then third, uh, the pursuit of pleasure, the avoidance of pain. Short term, there's not suffering embedded in that. But what if you can't get that pleasure? What if that pleasure is not so great? What if that pleasure ends? What if you fear the ending of the pleasure? Thus suffering begins. Alternately, the unpleasant, the unpleasant is painful. By definition, it's not pleasant. Mm. And sometimes excruciatingly unpleasant. As in either the physical pain or old age disease and death, the three messengers, or in social pain, because we're very social animals, we care about others, which is wonderful, but when they're harmed or at risk of harm, we suffer as well. So for all three reasons, then, you can see a kind of embedding of the truth of dukkha in human experience and in biological evolution. That's a given. Then the question, of course, is what do we do about it? Right, But anyway, right. that's the first truth. So there you go. Right, right. And I thought it was interesting you mentioned during the day long that we're somehow conditioned to really cling to the suffering when it arises as well. Like neurologically, we're five times more likely to notice the suffering than we are notice the pleasant stuff. And I, I wonder if you could say a little bit about that and, and what's kind of the neurological basis of that and why does that happen? Right. You're getting at what's called uh, the negativity bias of the brain. And it's the idea that in evolution, uh, while we are trained, of course, to pursue carrots and avoid sticks, and 
in some sense, we're the best at that of any organism on the planet. We're at the top of the food chain and have proliferated really, really effectively. Sticks and carrots are not equal. In other words, if you miss a carrot today, you'll get a chance at one tomorrow. But if you do not duck a stick today, whap, you probably will not have a crack at carrots tomorrow. And so we have evolved uh, systems in the brain that preferentially look for negative information. They're constantly scanning for threats. Opportunities are important, but watch out for threats. And then when they detect a threat, they super focus on the threat. The one bad tile in a mosaic of 100 tiles, let's say. I mean bad pragmatically, not morally. And then once they focus on it, there are preferential memory systems that really zero in on that information and um, register it and record it. And then there are other systems that preferentially access it when anything like that stick is encountered down the road again. And so the net result of that, and I'll talk how that happens neurologically in a minute if you want, the net result of that is that in the formation of implicit memory, distinct from explicit memory for specific events, uh, in the formation of implicit memory, which is the part of the mental iceberg that's below the waterline, it's the great bulk of the registration of lived experience deep in neurological structure, which then shapes and determines the experience of living and also how we act, helpfully or harmfully, with others. Anyway, the slow registration of lived experience in implicit memory is preferentially nudged toward the negative, even if most of life is positive. Now, we're not doomed. Hopefully, most of our life is positive, so there's enough to outbalance the negative, even with the negativity bias. But studies have shown that in interactions, in a relationship, an ongoing relationship, it typically takes about five positive interactions to neutralize a negative one. Also, for example, people will work much harder to avoid a loss than they'll work on the average, the average person, to uh, gain an equivalent reward. So that's the negativity bias of the brain. I say it's like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. So then to me it gets really important to accomplish what the Buddha talked about, bhavana, cultivation. How do we cultivate the wholesome and how do we increasingly incline the mind toward the greater good, really, for ourselves and all beings, and thereby defeat this priming that we have, this deep inclination we have toward fear and aggression, because that's how we manage threats, or freezing, or appeasing. It's a classic fight-flight-freeze-appease behavioral repertoire. A way to do that is to really look for and cultivate positive experiences, not in a diluted Pollyanna way, but rather in a very clear-eyed, tough-minded, self-compassionate way that's also based in justice. Because if you think about it, if most of the experiences we're having are most of the facts in our world, positive facts are the basis for positive experiences, and facts both in the outer world as well as facts in terms of our own qualities, we're much better people than we usually credit ourselves for being moment to moment to moment. So if we're not seeing clearly, in other words, if we're violating the Buddhist statement that the fundamental root of suffering is ignorance, it's not seeing clearly. If we're not seeing clearly the positive facts within us or the positive facts within the world, we're planting the seeds of suffering right then and there. And we're also planting the seeds of harming other people because when we don't feel full inside, we naturally feel we have less to offer others. Or if we're cranky or anxious, we're going to be excessively reactive to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune thrown by other people, or that we think are thrown by other people. 
And so for both those reasons, it really makes sense, both in terms of moment-to-moment just quality of life as well as becoming you know, more beneficial to other people. It makes sense to look for the positive and then particularly take 20, 30 seconds to register it because it usually takes longer to register a positive experience than a negative one. And the trick there, just in passing here, is to do what any school teacher knows works best for kids to learn things, or any trainer knows, or any teacher knows. Make the experience as intense as possible. Make it as bodily felt, as multimodal sensory as possible. And make it last as long as possible. Right? Intensity, embodiment, and duration. That's how you get neurons to fire together, and that's when they wire together in the famous saying from the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb, neurons that fire together, wire together. It's kind of mechanical, the brutally basic level in the architecture of the brain. You know, you want to get more neurons firing together so they get more neurons wiring together, and that's what stitches neural structure together. So specifically, the probably uh, circuitry of the brain that's particularly involved in the, ne- in the negativity bias at the emotional level is the uh, duo of the amygdala and the hippocampus. There are actually two of them. They're bilateral. In other words, there's one on each side of the brain, but we speak of them in the singular usually. So the amygdala is like the alarm bell. Uh, the hippocampus is involved in memory for events and particularly for the context in which events occur. And the amygdala in particular is primed to go negative. It lights up when something's really, really pleasant, but it's especially the majority, about two-thirds of the cells within it, are built out to track negative experiences. So that right there is the neural embodiment in one form of the negativity bias. It's also the case that, if you think about it, we have so many stress hormones that are really focused on responding to negative experience because, again, that's what helps lizards and monkeys and you know humans pass on their genes. So we have lots of stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline, norepinephrine, and so forth. But we don't have an equivalent massive army of very powerful, fast-acting hormones that tilt us toward positive experience. Yes, they exist. Oxytocin, the endorphins, other natural opiates, yes, they're there. But they just don't have the same urgency and the same dominance, you know, if you will, as the stress response, quote-unquote, negative hormones. So that's why I think it's really important to realize that from the standpoint of quality of life and spiritual practice long term, the brain is tilted against us. So to level the playing field, we got to really tilt toward the positive. Nice. And it was interesting in the day long, you gave these kind of five guidelines for how to do that. And you you showed that each one of them were kind of connected to the brain in certain ways. And that was a really interesting exercise I'm sure people can read about it more in Buddha's brain and, and check it out in other places, but it seems like that's one of the things you've been focusing on is specifically how do you level the playing field. That's great. I don't mind saying the five things, which are just, I think of them as five good foundations for helping the mind to steady. Because again, in evolution, I mean, even though there's an incredible emphasis, I mean, of the three pillars of practice, right? Samadhi is one of the three. Steadiness of mind, which I personally believe has been generally underemphasized as Buddhism moved to the West for reasons, probably some good reasons and maybe some bad ones as well. But steadying the mind is incredibly important. But A, we live in an ADD kind of culture, right? B, the brain did not evolve to steady. 
any <laughs> skittery, vigilant, any animal in the wild that just gets absorbed contemplatively into some local stimulus like its breath or the sunlight on the water, you know, it gets eaten because it's not tracking endlessly. You know, you watch animals in the wild, birds eating on the ground, squirrels in a tree. They're constantly looking, right, watching out. So anyway, how do we steady the mind, right? Mm. So first, just to go back slightly, one of the ways, so that's exactly what I really think about. If I were to say a phrase, I think of what we do, what I do is applied neurodharma. That's what I'm really mm, interested in. Interesting. Yeah, it's applied. That's what really turns me on. It's cool theoretically and intellectually. Buddhism is a path of practice, not a path of philosophy. Mm-hmm. The Buddhist was first and foremost a great yogi, a great teacher, you know, a great doctor, if you will. He used that metaphor for himself, as we know. He moved through the philosophy part to just kind of sort things out and do Dharma combat, if you will. And these guys would come and challenge him, the other Brahmins and stuff, and ascetics. But anyway, it's really a path of what works. It's pragmatic and empirical. So in that sense, it's extremely harmonious with the meta model of Western science, that it's also empirical and pragmatic. So all that said, when a person does the things I just said a, a moment ago in passing, to take in the good, in other words, to... In three steps, one, let the positive event or fact become a positive experience. Because a lot of time we just, good things are happening, but we don't, the needle doesn't move in our actual emotions or body. Second, really relish it. Really, really relish it. Savor it. Enjoy it. You know, the Buddha talked about tons and tons of positive experiences. We tend to think of this tradition as kind of dour and bummer and, you know, don't catch me smiling. You know what I mean? But actually, he was joyful. He talked about gladdening the heart. Two of the five factors of the jhanas are emotionally positive. You know, the words bliss and joy. One of the seven primary factors of awakening, tranquility, is affectively very positive. Uh, rapture is also a factor of awakening. So we got two of the seven are affectively positive. So it's important to really savor and relish these things. That's the second step that gets these neurons to fire together and wire together. And then the third step is to really sense and intend that the experience is sinking into you. Technically, you're using prefrontal executive control systems in ways that are still not well understood to prime and kind of encourage and activate memory systems so that these experiences really sink into your bones. So for me, that's an example of neurologically informed methods. To do the one about steadying the mind, I'll just quickly name five things people can do that are neurologically informed. At the beginning of a sitting or maybe at the beginning of practice if someone's kind of new to it and it's not that natural to just kind of drop into presence with yourself, that's Fundamentally, what mindfulness is, presence. The trick is to sustain the presence. Most of us can do it for three or four breaths in a row. But what's that threshold? You know, the seventh breath, the 17th breath, you know, that we just fall off. So let's see. Number one, set an intention. Either kind of top down with words maybe or more bottom up through an embodied sense of sitting like the Buddha or sitting like a teacher I sometimes imagine sitting like Jack Cornfield or sitting like other teachers I've, I've known over the years to kind of embody that intentionality. You know, somewhat akin to the Noble Eightfold Path. Wise intention is pretty central there. So setting an intention is very important. And what setting an intention does is it primes basically the systems in the brain to go in a certain direction. And it already starts inclining them and going in that direction. Second is to relax. Do you know some exhalations, deliberately relax the body, touch your mouth if you want. You know, that's a lot of keys there. What that does is it activates the parasympathetic wing. 
of the autonomic nervous system and downregulates the stress response, fight or flight, sympathetic wing. The reason for doing that to relax, which again is a traditional instruction. In other words, nothing that I'm saying here of these five things are not found somewhere in the warehouse of Buddhist methods, but I'm calling out ones that make a lot of sense neurologically that sometimes we just kind of bypass. But when you use them, they really are facilitative of steadying the mind. I'll sometimes go through them. I mean, I've been practicing quite a while. But I'll sometimes go through them, particularly if my mind's a little jumpy. It takes about a minute to go through all five, really. But then you've laid a foundation neurologically. You know, you've kind of set yourself up to succeed. So parasympathetic arousal helps settle us down so we can bring attention inward and we can steady. When we're sympathetically activated, that drives attention toward rapid scanning and a skitteriness. That's, to me, one reason why so much practice is about finding a place of tranquility, settling down and calming. Third technique is to really help yourself feel safer as much as you can. We evolved to be very, very vigilant externally, and that keeps us alive, but it pulls attentional resources away from bringing attention inward. So if you do it is appropriate for you to remind yourself that you're relatively safe. There's no perfect safety in this world, but there is greater felt safety. In other words, a felt sense of safety that's congruent with the actual safety we experience. We usually feel much less safe than we have a right to, which is needless suffering right there because the brain developed basically an ongoing trickle of anxiety. Try to walk across a street or a mall or your living room without any sense at all of little low-grade apprehension and anxiety. It's a very interesting mindfulness practice and difficult to do. So try to help yourself feel safer fourth step is to activate positive emotion as best you can. Embody it. Thich Nhat Hanh's half-smile is an effective method. Think about things that gladden the heart in the language of the Buddha. Often positive emotion is mild or subtle, but it's still important nonetheless, like gratitude or a sense of contentment or gladness that I am now finally sitting down to meditate or just something that makes you happy. I think about my kids. People think about pets. I go to Tuolumne Meadows in my mind sometimes because that makes me happy to think about being in the mountains. Uh, Whatever makes you happy. That does all kinds of really good things, positive emotions too. It downregulates the sympathetic nervous system, which has all those other benefits I described. It also motivates us to do practice because it's rewarding. And Interestingly, it does that through multiple means, but they include two neurotransmitter systems, dopamine and norepinephrine. In other words, when we're experiencing arousal and positive emotions are arousing and rewarding, we then activate dopamine and norepinephrine. Dopamine is involved in gating attention, so high steady levels of dopamine, in ways I explain in the book, block the gate to working memory. In other words, they block the gate, as it were, for information to come flooding in to the, as Bernard Barks calls it, to the global workspace of consciousness. I think of it as like the mental chalkboard, in a sense, or a meadow. And we want to keep the critters out if we're trying to steady the mind on one object of attention, like the breath or a mantra or loving kindness or something like that, or some investigation we're doing. Well, how do you keep the gate to the meadow closed? Because Mother Nature wants to pop that gate open a lot. So you'll notice threats and even new opportunities. Well, high steady levels of dopamine keep that gate closed because steady dopamine keeps it closed and high 
steady dopamine blocks spikes of dopamine coming in from the possibility of new rewards or new threats. So feeling good steadily helps you steady the mind, which is why I think it's no accident that two of the five jhana factors have a lot of positive emotion in them. It's also cool that dopamine and norepinephrine facilitate synaptic formation. I mean, the practice is a path of learning in a broad sense. We want to build wholesome neural structure, and we want to unbuild, if you will, unwholesome neural structure and replace it with wholesome neural structure. How do we do that? Well, dopamine and norepinephrine facilitate neurons stitching together and forming new neural structure, literally at the chemical level. So if you prompt them through positive emotion, you're going to learn more from the sitting than you would otherwise. The other thing is that norepinephrine is arousing and it helps us stay alert. You know, when we're trying to track some kind of ongoing, somewhat unstimulating, even boring, <laughs> stimulating the breath over and over or something like that. Norepinephrine is a general alerting and orienting neurotransmitter and, and hormone that kind of says, wake up to the brain as a whole, pay attention. So that's some of the results from deliberately focusing on positive emotion at the beginning of a set. And then the last step, I think, is just to intend and sense that the benefits of the, of the meditation, and it's not always through sitting practice, it could be in all kinds of other forms of practice, walking or karma yoga, if you will, doing dishes on a retreat or in your kitchen at home, that you're intending and sensing that the benefits are sinking into you. There you are again doing the taking in the good thing that I talked about earlier and defeating the negativity bias of the brain. So those are five methods that I think are very practical. People can do them. They're very sensible. And, you know, see if you get results from them. That's the bottom line. You know, I think the Buddha and Dr. Phil are basically asking the same question all the time. How's that working for you? You know, that's like the bottom line karma question. Yeah, okay, what are the results? So see what the results are. But I don't know. They make neurological sense. I think it's all kind of cool, actually, to think about how what we're doing in our mind is activating these amazing states in our brain. And also to, to realize, wow, so much of what the Buddha taught in a completely different culture, uh, mostly preliterate, certainly pre-industrial, somewhat feudal, patriarchal, ancient culture, so much of what he taught was incredibly neurologically savvy. The thing is, you know, he knew that if he did A, mental activity A, he would get mental results C. And the C state is the target state. Okay. He didn't know what was happening in the brain B. In other words, mental activity A activates brain state B, which then fosters you know, mental state C. That's our target of interest that we're aiming for, like you know, greater steadiness of mind or liberating insight or cultivating loving kindness, say. But what's available increasingly through neuroscience is we're starting to connect the dotted lines between mental activity A, brain state B, and then how brain state B fosters mental state C. That's our target of interest. What I like to do a lot, and that's a major theme in the book, is reverse engineering. To take these very precise descriptions, especially in the Pali Canon, I think, not to knock the Mahayana in there as well. I'm just more grounded in the Theravadan wing. But in any case... To read these descriptions of the path of awakening or the steadying of the mind, like, for example, the Buddha has a roadmap that's fairly commonly repeated of, you know, the one should steady the mind internally, quiet it, bring it to singleness, and then concentrate it. Or the description of the jhanas, right? The eighth 
pillar of the Noble Eightfold Path, or the run-up to nirvana that the Buddha described repeatedly in his own experience or when he describes a progressive process leading to cessation and nibbana. Well, what in the world could be happening in the brain? In other words, if there's this one-to-one mapping of mental states to neural states, okay, we have a very precise description of mental states. How could they be operationalized in the nervous system? And then my understanding how they are or could be operationalized, at least to some extent in the nervous system, as people progress on the path or truly awaken beings, let's reverse engineer. Let's think, what can we do to stimulate and strengthen those brain states? Because if you stimulate them, you strengthen them. Because you're firing those neurons, so you're wiring those neurons. How can we stimulate and strengthen those brain states, right, that are the basis of those wonderful mind states of interest? So that here in life, here in our household or life in the West, we can actually promote those brain states better and get more of those mental states that are our targets of interest. So that to me is the essence of what the opportunity is and why I think there's such a turn on in this area. Because you start realizing, holy moly, we're starting to get the wiring diagram of the black box. We knew that if we did kind of amazing, skillful things kind of in our mind, we could get a result in our mind, but we never really knew what in the world was going on deep in the black box. Now we're getting a wiring diagram, and then we can get at the causes and conditions in the black box in skillful means. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference. Hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.